Hello and welcome to the Odds Checker podcast. This is a European football podcast and I'm joined by two expert guests. Joined by Martin Lawrence from Who Scored and football journalist, author and editor of The Blizzard, Jonathan Wilson. I'm your host, George Ellick, and today we're going to be looking back at the quarterfinals in the Champions League and the Europa League and then looking ahead and trying to find some value in the semi-finals coming up this week. We're recording this at about 10am on Monday morning. So we've just seen United crash out against Sevilla last night. We're looking forward to the second semi this evening between Inter and uh, Shakhtar Donetsk. Uh, and we're going to start, guys, with the with the United game. And before we get into the betting stuff, before we get into trying to find some, some value and a few odds, just going to talk about United. And Jonathan, I'm going to come to you first here because when we spoke in this very uh, this very show last week, you expressed some doubts about uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's managerial credentials. And we've seen a couple of games since then, a, a win in extra time against FC Copenhagen and then a defeat yesterday against uh, against Sevilla. Both goals they scored were penalties. I mean, how concerned and what should United fans be taking out of what we've seen in the last week? I mean, it's very hard to be definitive. I mean, I think the... The, the the two games sort of although they followed a similar pattern of United having loads of chances and not being able to take them, they they felt very different. So I, I was I was sort of pretty confident they were always going to beat Copenhagen. I never really saw a way that maybe it could have gone to penalties. But even then, I sort of felt that United's quality would 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 see them through in a shootout. Whereas against Sevilla, once that ten minute burst at the beginning of the second half was over, I couldn't really see how United were going to score. Uh, and I I I, I guess. The problem was what we saw towards the end of the, of the domestic season, that this this core eleven that Sarsia has is fine and is good and can be excellent, but there's not much beyond that, and that means they're very prone to fatigue. I think you saw Rashford has looked exhausted probably for, I don't know, four or five weeks now, mm. and one of the problems they have, and this this is the thing I've always come back to with Sarsia, is I think if you if you look at the the very very best managers in the modern game. So Klopp, Guardiola, Tuchel, they Hansi Flick, they 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 um, they have these practiced attacking moves. So when they break, particularly, they know exactly where players are going to move. So everything becomes semi-automatic. So that each move you gain, I don't know, point one of a second with every pass because you know exactly where where your teammates are making the runs. You know where to, where to, where to put the ball. You know where to be looking for them. And so over a move of sort of five or six passes, that becomes quite significant and quite substantial. Now, there are some managers who don't believe in that. And, and some Jesse Mourinho would tell you football's too random to, to do that and it'll never work. You need to prepare the players mentally. So I don't think it's as simple as saying there's a right or a wrong. But certainly in modern football, at the very highest level, the managers do seem to do that. I don't think Solskjaer does that. And I think the big problem when you don't do that, when you leave players to improvise, is that when their confidence dips or when they get tired, they have a tendency to overcomplicate things. And I think you saw that again and again in that severe Manchester United game, that United players, Rashford particularly, they would get in a, in a great position to break. And then somehow the move would just sort of sputter out. Nothing would happen. Uh, there was two or three times in the first half when Bruno Fernandes got the ball in a great position. He had a player coming outside him on the right. And somehow the pass wasn't quite weighted properly. Or the pass got there. And then uh, I think the first one was Fred. And clearly what should have happened was Fred should have cut back inside and somebody should have been giving him an option at the top of the box. And they weren't. So he ends up trying to beat the defender again. 
And and so I think that's where you see the failure of, of Solskjaer's method. So I think it's a combination of a squad that's slightly too small, but there's also that fundamental there which makes that that fatigue more of an issue than it needs to be. Martin, a lot of United fans will point to the fact that they had, I think it was 43 or 44 shots over the two games, suggesting, and, and you know, undoubtedly two keepers had, you know, were arguably the stars for both of their side for both Copenhagen and, and Sevilla. Is that a fair excuse or reason as to why, um, you know, why they were maybe unlucky to go out or do the issues run a bit deeper for you? I think if they had gone out in the FC Copenhagen game, I think that would have been very fair. I thought the game from the keeper in that in that match was literally remarkable, like <laughs> once in a blue moon type stuff. Some of the saves he was making were were ridiculous. I wouldn't say Bono's performance was anywhere near that uh, last night. He made some good saves, but I think where just Sevilla, a, t- a ten minute spell wasn't it really? Just after it the was, and I'm not even sure it was that. I think a lot of them were sort of within a couple of, within a minute maybe there were like three <laughs> chances and I think that sort of exaggerated how sort of the game was viewed as Manu having this sort of 10 15 minute spell I'm not sure they did I think it was just in like a really intense moment where Sevilla's defense were a little bit all over the place and Manu were were really pressurizing them and no no doubt they should have should have taken advantage of that and were well on top but I'm not sure they had this sort of dominance of the game that has been suggested and like I said but um Bono saves, they were good, but where Sevilla defended deep, the the issue was Martial, he was on top of Martial very quickly, uh, so he was just making these saves that were basically point blank right in front of him, whereas, um, I've forgotten the Copenhagen goalkeeper's name now, but he he was just pulling off these unreal saves, uh, so they were, they were very different in that sense, so I didn't see, I agree with Jonathan, I didn't see beyond that spell where, where Man United were really going to really going to hurt Sevilla. I thought they were they were pretty organised, uh, barring that sort of uh, little glut of chances for Manchester United. Uh, you're right, they had 46 shots, it was, over was the it? two games and scored two penalties. So, I mean, it looks like there's an issue there. I think, Like I say, the, the Copenhagen game, I think, was a bit of a freak. I think they could have scored six or seven goals in that game and you wouldn't have been that surprised. But last night was, was very different, I felt. And that's just... That's just the case of you're coming up against a much, much better team. There's no, there's no surprise that Sevilla beat Manchester United, uh, as much as people are saying it's an upset. I mean, Sevilla dominate this competition. They know how to win in this competition. Um, so yeah, I, I'm not sure how how much you can read into it in terms of Manchester United's problems. Uh, I feel like, like you say, Solskjaer only trusts. There's an issue of trust there. I think he he trusts 12, 13 players in that squad. And it's fair to say because the drop off beyond the first 12, 13 players, the best 12, 13 players is, is pretty stark. But I thought the changes he made against Copenhagen actually worked pretty well. The ones that you thought that's a bit, that's a bit ordinary. And Mata and Matic came on and actually, actually sort of gave them a bit of control in that game. And that brings me to a point where I'm surprised Matic hasn't started either of the games. I must say, I know Fred's been good in Europa League and he's played like the whole competition, but. United just looked so much more in control when Matic plays. And I think certainly against Sevilla, that would have helped. Uh, and their their win rate basically doubles when he plays and they concede far fewer goals. So I was surprised that he didn't play either, either game. Um, and I feel like that, that was a mistake on Solskjaer's part. But one of those things, I guess, I, I, I wouldn't read a huge amount into it. I just think the two teams were pretty similar in terms of quality and Sevilla had the edge, really. We spoke about this. Um, when we spoke about 10 days ago about 
Solskjaer's maybe tactical naivety when it came to substitutions. And yet again yesterday, whether it's due to a lack of depth or a lack of, of trust in the substitutes, we find ourselves in a situation where United are 2-1 down in a knockout game after 78 minutes. He doesn't make a single substitution until the 87th minute. And when you add into that the fact that they are playing, you know, they're playing games regularly at this point. And if they were to qualify, they would have a, 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 a final around the corner as well. I mean, it plays into what United fans are saying now, where they believe that despite all of this, they need a new goalkeeper, a new centre-back, a new left-back, a new defensive midfielder and a new striker, despite the churn of recent seasons as well. United fans will point to the fact they got to a semi-final and they finished third, but you've also got to look at the points tally and see they only got 66 points this season, which I think is the lowest since that David Moyes season um, coming in. So... Jonathan, it's, 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 a, it's a very hard question, this, but do United fans have it right? Do they need to strengthen and reinvest in players yet again? Or are there other ways they can go about ensuring that you know, this third trophy of the season is the last one for a while? No, I think they probably do need new players, but I also think that's, that's not the only issue. It's very easy to say, oh, you know, if you rip out half his team and, and put in you know, another five great players, it'll be better. Well, of course it will. But it's not like United haven't spent money in the last mm. you know, eight, nine years. I mean, the three most expensive signings in Premier League history are all Manchester United players. Um, so to, to just talk about about you know, the flow of transfers, I, I think slightly misses the point that I'm not entirely certain there's a... There's a I was about to say the terrible word project. I'm not, I'm not entirely certain there's a sort of cohesive plan there. Um... Do they need a centre forward? I think they probably do need another forward just to relieve the burden on these three. I think Daniel James is, after some promising signs early in the season, hasn't quite kicked on as, as you might have liked. I, th- I think definitely they need another centre back. Um, so the sense you always get with with United is they have a mistake in them. There's a moment of where the concentration will switch off, as happened with Lindelof for, for the uh, for the winner. Um, maybe a bit unlucky with a left back that Luke Shaw wasn't available, but um, if you're a club of United stature, do you want a, a pretty untested teenager being your, your, your cover there? And then De Gea now has become a massive problem for them because over mm. the last two seasons, his, his level has dipped so far. And also, uh, I wonder whether he's the right sort of goalkeeper for the sort of football that teams now have to play, if, if a, you know, the top European teams have to play. He, his problems with Spain seem to stem from being asked to play behind the high line. His best performances came behind a, you know, a, a team sitting quite deep. He, he's not comfortable leaving his box. I mean, I think his passing stats are actually pretty good, but it's not as simple as that. As we saw with Joe Hart, that he might be able to ping a 60-yard ball to feet, but he's got to be able to move his feet quickly to, to set up that pass. He's got to be able to read the game well enough to, to, to leave his box, and he's got to be comfortable doing that. And De Gea, I think he may be slightly unlucky that, that football's just sort of moved beyond his, his, his type of goalkeeping before his career's come to an end. Well, that brings to a close the, the Manchester United post-mortem. Uh, we will be previewing the rest of the Europa League at the end of this podcast and video, so make sure you stick around for that. We'll be talking about tonight's semi-final between Inter and Shakhtar and then looking at the outright market as well to see if there's any value there. But we're going to move on now to the Champions League and to the semi-finals. No English team, of course, left in Europe at this stage now. Um, but before we preview these and try and find some value, just going to point you in the direction of the Odds Checker app. Uh, it is, of course, the very best place to get all the best prices, the best bookie offers, the best free bets, and the very best tipsters as well, including who scored, of course, who put up some great stats-based 
stats-based tips uh, up there. And if you're listening to this podcast or watching this video, you surely have an interest in football betting. So the key companion for the Champions League and for the rest of the football coming up uh, in the coming months ahead. Um, the first semi on Tuesday evening is RB Leipzig against PSG. Uh, looking at the odds in 90 minutes, PSG are, as you'd expect, very short price favourites, around about the four to five mark. Uh, the draw just over three to one, and Leipzig 18 to five with Unibet best price on odds checker. Uh, and the to qualify market, we have PSG at two to five, uh, and then Leipzig 21 to 10. So PSG rightful favourites. So I think it'll be tough to argue against that, but. From what I saw over the semi-finals, I mean, PSG, of course, got the job done against Atalanta, Jonathan. They, they, they did it the hard way. It's not something we're used to seeing PSG doing this competition necessarily either. But Leipzig, you know, Wernerless Leipzig were mightily impressive as well. So how do you assess these two sides or, or how has your opinion of these two sides changed since we last spoke? Um, I think pro- probably I, I'd underestimated both of them. Um, I think the thing with PSG, I mean, it's, it's a ridiculous thing to say of a... Of a of a, of a team with that array of stars with that much money spent on them. But the fact they didn't bottle it does actually feel quite significant. Yeah. Um, that they, they've, you know, they, they've crumbled under pressure so often in Europe before. And I, I think it has become a psychological issue for them that the fact they were able to keep going is, is a good sign. I think Neymar produced one of his, his most mature performances, certainly that I've ever seen, um, that despite missing those two chances in the first half, uh, he didn't sort of lapse into the sort of petulant Neymar. He wasn't chucking himself to the ground. He wasn't you know, screaming all the time. He wasn't in the referee's face. He just got on with it. And you can make a case that maybe he tried to do too much and he was coming too deep. But fundamentally, yeah, he, he'd gotten back in that game. Um, they looked much better when Mbappe came on. Uh, so I think his fitness is, is, a, is a big thing. I, I think also um, you saw that Atlanta did worry them with the pressing in the first half. And Atlanta tired. And that's the thing you've seen in all four of the quarterfinals. The team has played less football over the last uh, couple of months, one through on each occasion. Uh, I suspect with Leipzig that would be less of an issue than it was with Atlanta. Uh, but in, 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 in a sense, that sort of, it almost balances out the PSG not bottling factor. The Atlanta was were so clearly so knackered by the end that PSG was just wave after wave of attack. Mm. And it was just a question of, at some point, they were going to score two goals, as whether the final whistle came before that point or not. And it, it just didn't. Um, but Leipzig, you know, I, I'd, I'd sort of made the mistake of thinking they might be a bit toothless without Werner, and they, they weren't at all. And you saw, again, just what a brilliant coach Nagelsmann is, that you know, Atletico equalised, you think momentum's with them, and he makes the change. He sort of negates um, the, the, uh, the the difference that Jafelix had made. Uh, you know, he sits Adams on him, changes to a back four, and the the, the balance of the game shifts again. So you you see both Nagelsmann's willingness to change during a game, and how well drilled that team is, that they are they are able to change during a game without this sort of being the sort of awkward thirty seconds minute of transition. They just changed and and they they became much better and and the game was back in their control almost immediately. So and I think you know, it is a what what we've seen sort of in in you know as a whole over this tournament is or over the last sort of week is three Spanish sides going out in similar ways, looking slower and weaker than opponents. And we've now got you know, three of the four coaches left are, are German. 
very different generations. You know, one in his thirties, one in his forties, one in his fifties, but also playing this sort of very characteristic Bundesliga pressing game. Mm. Um, and to see Nagelsmann and, and Tuchel going against each other, I mean, they've met three times before. It's not entirely a fair comparison, given that Tuchel was in charge of Dortmund and Nagelsmann with Hoffenheim, all three of those. But Tuchel has won two and one draw. Uh, but you know, Nagelsmann feels, I don't know, there's something exciting about watching Nagelsmann, his, his youth, his willingness to change, his courage, his, his, his obvious intelligence, I think is all incredibly exciting. Absolutely. And looking, Martin, at the at the Who Scored preview. Um, anyone who hasn't checked out Who Scored, it's a, a, the only place and the best place to get all of your, your pre-match stats, player stats, team stats and the like. And, you know, Leipzig have scored at least two goals in six of their last seven Champions League games. So anybody who thinks that PSG coming to this one are going to have it their own way are, are, are probably going to be in for a bit of a shot. Yeah, most definitely. I think this is a, I think this is a really, really tough game for PSG. I think... The, the key thing is that this will be a very, very different PSG to the to the team that played Atalanta, and that's only through two changes. You'd expect Mbappe to start. He may not, but you'd, you'd certainly expect him to. Um, but I think the key one is arguably Di Maria, who comes back from a ban. And I think that game the other night, it was just, I mean, it's been sort of done to death, but the difference between the three midfield and then the three forwards and there's just no no link there whatsoever like three very sort of i mean certainly together three pretty ordinary midfielders i think if you had one in there they're they're very very good at what they do but when you've got all three that are are relatively similar um the the link there there was just sort of non-existent and i think this would have been an interesting game if Di maria wasn't playing because you've got christopher and kunku on the other side who is a creative midfield player that PSG let go obviously last summer and you, you struggled to see why they would do that when you look at the game that they just played and the lack of sort of creativity in that mid- midfield and certainly of, in terms of youth and, and young players because Di Maria is obviously into his 30s now um, but I just think he's although Man United fans might sort of disagree he's he's been sensational this season Di Maria uh, had one of his had one of his best for, for quite some time and you, you look at people saying oh it's in a farmer's league or whatever but there's um that's, <laughs> that's that, that argument's out the window now isn't it <laughs> kind of gone out the window i guess yeah so uh, i think his involvement will be really really important uh, to psg and will change the game quite substantially just because there was just that there was just nothing there uh, and then you were reliant on neymar for, the, for that bit of brilliance and obviously he's he's well accustomed to that and can can do that but i feel like um RB Leipzig probably would have had an answer for sort of one man, which it was uh, the other night on Neymar, whereas now you've probably got three that you've got to deal with, and that changes the game massively. Um, so it, I think this will be a really, really interesting game, and or one goal in it, certainly for me, uh, and I could easily see it going RB Leipzig's way, personally. Do you think, so, yeah. do you think they're at their value at 21 to 10 to qualify? I do, yeah. I, I certainly do. I, I, I don't think PSG are value. Um, so yeah, they're, they're the value in my opinion. I, I, I would not be surprised one bit if they if they went through this game. I think a lot has been looked into sort of PSG's mental strength, and but I think the point that Jonathan just made is so important about Atalanta. Just sort of they just, they were just knackered, mm. absolutely knackered, and PSG, as much as it's. Um, Chupo Motting, who comes off the bench and scores, they do have, they do now have more sort of strength in depth. 
Um, so that was so that was to be expected, I think. Uh, and they they didn't they just didn't play well up to that point whatsoever uh, until Mbappe came on uh, and you just had Neymar. So I think this sort of very organised and very intelligent RB Leipzig team that are are flexible will pose them a, will pose them a lot of problems. I mean, certainly, uh, Upamecano's performance in the quarterfinal announced him on the world stage for those who weren't already aware that there was an elite young centre-back playing at Leipzig. But, but Jonathan, in terms of a tactical battle and maybe whether we can expect like an, an open affair or, or, or a cagey one, surely the, the pace of Mbappe, given Leipzig, you know, they're obviously very well drilled defensively, but, but do press high. Um, and we saw how devastating Mbappe's case can be running in behind after he came on against Atalanta, who continue to try at least to, to stifle PSG. I mean, how do you see the game being played out? Because is it going to be a case where both Nagelsmann and Tuchel stick to their their um, their philosophies of pressing high? Or are they, is Nagelsmann maybe going to have to make some, some changes just to account for that sheer pace they have running in behind? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think he will, and and I think the thing with Nagelsmann is he is, um, you know, he isn't an ideologue in the way that, that a lot of the pressing coaches are. I think he is flexible, and I think that's one of the most impressive things about him. Um, I, I, and that's my one. I mean, doubt seems too strong. My one slight question mark about Open Meccano is, he does like to wander forward with the ball, and that does always make me think. Well, if you've got a bit of pace, can you explo- exploit that? And obviously, mm. Mbappe is probably the best player in the world to do that. So, so I think that is an issue. I, and I, th- I think the point about Di Maria is absolutely right. I think Di Maria, um, and I think this was true in his Real Madrid days when he never seemed to quite get the credit he deserved. I think it's true with Argentina when he never quite seems to get the credit. He he is one of the best players in the world at linking a midfield to a forward line at sort of leading a counter-attack. And so I think his role in that becomes becomes vital. And I think it becomes almost more vital now that Munier is not there. I think Munier was very good, albeit from fullback, at sort of at linking the lines together. Um, and so, you know, we talk about Werner having having left. Well, PSG have been sort of, I mean, it, it doesn't matter to the same extent because they've got a much bigger squad, much deeper squad, but they've lost Cavani and, and Munier. And I, I think that does make a difference. And I, I mean, I, you know, I know I said this last time I was, I was on, but I find it bizarre that UEFA has allowed this to happen, that mm. the players have been allowed to leave before the end of the season. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in terms of any any value, any betting, what, what would you be looking at here if you were going to be having a fluster on the game? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I would agree that it's um, slightly better than 2-1. to one. Um, Leipzig looked look decent value. Um, I, I, I struggle to see how PSG can keep a clean sheet. So, so maybe if I wanted to, to back PSG to go through, I'd be looking at... Uh, PSG to go through and both teams to score. Um, that 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 would be my only sort of uh, alternative to uh, to to Leipzig going through. So PSG and both teams to score is eleven to five uh, best price. And if you just wanted about both teams to score, there's a bit of four to six around with Hills as well, which could be the way to go. But seemingly we feel like there are going to be a few goals around a fairly tight game in terms of winning margin. And maybe just siding with Leipzig in terms of of qualifying, and it wouldn't be the first time, of course. Despite you know the the comeback late on against Atalanta, um, you still feel like there are some there are some uh, some issues there for PSG. I, I still wouldn't really fancy them going into a tight game for twenty minutes to go, given the history with that club, even though they came through last week. Um, but one, well, two sides who came through fairly easily in the end, one slightly more so than the other. Uh, Bayern Munich and Lyon. Bayern beating Barcelona 
8-2 in a game that I'm pretty sure we'll be talking about for years to come and could have a profound effect on on the losing side and how they look in, in, in future seasons, at least in the short term. And Lyon, who um, exploited a rare tactical gaffe, which I'm sure we'll talk about fairly soon from Pep Guardiola, changing system to take on the team that finished seventh in that supposed Farmers League, League 1. Um, they are 11-1 to 1 to win this in 90 minutes. The draw is 13-2. to 2. So Leon, I think a fair bit shorter than they were. Um, understandably, I think they're about 14-1 to 1, um, to beat Man City in 90 minutes, which they ended up doing uh, with a one-goal um, uh, you know, handicap as well. Uh, Bayern Munich are 1-11 to 11 to qualify from the, through the tie. Leon are 8-1. to 1. And you know, let's, let's start with the inquest here. Uh, Martin, I'll come to you first. Let's start with the, the Bayern-Barcelona game. I mean, can we take, what can we take from Bayern Munich's performance here? Because so much of the narrative on the back of this is the end of an era for Barcelona. But how much credit do we give to Bayern? Or do we look at maybe some defensive frailties that were, that were quite clearly on show as well? You have to give them a huge amount of credit. They're, they're an unbelievable team. Playing at their at their peak right now, really. I think I think, ironically, it's it's still sort of Müller and Lewandowski who are the the big difference. Their intelligence, just in terms of their link up for that first goal, was incredible. Was it the first goal? Müller's first goal, yeah. It was. Um, it's hard to keep track, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, was sensational. But their, their understanding, certainly in that final third, is is frightening uh, and has been all season, really. Um, so yeah, you have to give them a great amount of credit, but. I mean, Barcelona, that was, it was just bizarre watching it. It just looked like one of those games that you play on a, you play on a Sunday league game and you've all gone out the night before because it was someone's birthday or something. And that's what the defending was like. It was, it was, it was that bad. It was, it was shambolic. Um, and Nelson Semedo had one of the, one of the worst games that I've seen for, for quite some time. Um, but so did, so did sort of 90% of that team, I guess. Um, so yeah, it was it was a, t- it's a freak game, um, but it just showed how how frightening Bayern are, and I think how how far above anyone else in the competition that they are really. Um, there are there are some weaknesses defensively, and you can get in behind them certainly, and you will you will get chances, and Leon, Leon uh, might get a couple. I don't see them getting getting much, and I I feel like this is a game where they would need to score probably three or four to have sort of any real chance of qualifying. I just think Bayern are that good from attacking standpoint. Uh, and that's despite the fact that Leon were defensively were, were very, very good against um, Man City. And obviously they, they have a very settled way of playing. And Rudy Garcia is a relatively sort of pragmatic defensive coach, one might argue. Um, but yeah, how he deals with this, this Bayern side is... It's such a hard one. It's such a hard one. They've just got threats everywhere, uh, like all over the pitch. So I just think I think this will this will be too much for Lyon. Um, but yeah, I was I was super impressed by Hussein Awar against Man City. The the maturity that he plays with for his age, just that was that was remarkable for me. He just relieved the pressure so so many times. He just sort of held on to that ball for that extra sort of couple of seconds to let to let Leon sort of get back into shape and. And reorganise, and I think I think he was the key player in that game, and he'll have to have another remarkable game um, for Lyon to have any chance, really. Um, but it's incredibly hard to make a case for them. 
when I asked you last week to pick out a player um, for Leon who could be an upset, you said our, despite the fact it's not the easiest one to pronounce. So I'll give you some credit for that as well. Um, my favourite kind of story that's come out since the, the Barca buying game, I mean, it's not Lionel Messi handing in yet another kind of um, unofficial transfer request, because we'll see how that goes. Probably ends up with either a new contract to Barcelona or, or maybe even a bigger one in China. Um, but it's the Coutinho story, where not only <clears throat> did he come on against the, the club that he's on loan from and score two late goals, but also it's transpired since that there's a clause in the contract that suggests that if he does win the Champions League with Bayern Munich, because he's still contracted to Barcelona, they will owe £5 million to Liverpool, which just seems absolutely bonkers. Um, but... Yeah, Liverpool's season continues to improve, especially after a weekend of watching both Manchester United, well, both Manchester teams, I should say, crash out of Europe and, and finding that they might be getting a nice bonus coming their way as well. Um, Jonathan, but I mean, same question, I guess, to you in, in terms of with both Bayern and Leon on the back of the the, the quarterfinals. Um, certainly with Leon, it's fairly obvious that we have to upgrade them markedly. But but what do you, what have you seen from them that changes the way you you you? You see them going into the semis? Nothing really. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I, I guess maybe they are a little bit better on the break than I'd, I, I, you know, I, I knew they were good on the break. Maybe I didn't quite realize how good. <laughs> um, but I think the, you know, the, the, the three games they've played since, since the end of lockdown, you know, PSG in the Coupe de la League final, uh, and then Juventus and then uh, City, all three games, they've, they've done the same thing. They've sat deep, they've tried to, to, to attack on the break. And, They'll, you know, they'll have to do the same against Bayern. But the problem for them is, what happens if they go behind? Basically, there's one way Leon can, can win that game, and that is to hang on, to hang on, to hang on, to hang on, and get the first goal, or I guess hang on and win on penalties. If they go behind, as soon as they come out, Bayern will rip them apart. Mm-hmm. And and so uh, that that's why you know, I, 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 I can't see this, this same trick working again. That somebody is going to score an early goal against them soon, and when that, ha- I mean, okay, Juve was a slightly different situation because they had the lead from the first leg, but you know, so they knew they 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 could lose two one and and still go through. Um, but as soon as they concede, I, that's, that's game over. I, you know, I can't see any way they they they, they get back. Um, so I think that makes it massively difficult for them. Um, and you buying, I um. What I'd love to know is the way they played against Barca, is that just how they play? Or was that and then sort of how they're sort of destined to play against whoever they're playing against? You know, they, they, they'll never take a more defensive approach. Or was that Hansi Flick looking at Barca and going, OK, we'll make it a shootout. We'll have 30 shots. You can have 10 and we'll, we'll win it 8-2. Thanks. Um, I don't think Barca did get up to, to, to 10 shots at the end. But it was, it was reminiscent of the, the game when, when Guardiola took Bayern to, to Barcelona in the semi-final in, in 2015 and started with that crazily high line, the back three. And basically sort of his gamble then seemed to be, well, I can't work out a way to defend against this front line, against the MSN front line, so I just won't bother. What I'll do is I'll try and put the onus on them to defend. I'll try and press them out of the pitch because I'm not used to that. I'll try and rattle them. And if it becomes a shootout, maybe we get a couple of away goals and that's fine. But as it turned out, they just, you know, they... they they got the first sort of 25 minutes they got destroyed. We're very lucky to still be at nil-nil, but the exhaustion from that counted against Bayern late on. So I wonder if it's a similar thing of, of Hansi Flick just thinking, I actually don't really mind if we can see the goal or two because I think we can score pretty much whatever number we want. We just have to get in their faces, which is you know what they did. 
I mean, do you think that Leon will take some credit? I mean, I know Barcelona were very poor in the night, but <clears throat> certainly did cause some problems on the break. And you have to assume as well that the way that the, the game will work. I mean, that always the the pattern of play when it becomes just a, a, basically a basketball game, when there are early goals, always kind of whatever tactical plans are worth basically goes in the bin, especially when it's 4-1 after half an hour. We have to assume this is going to take the shape of, of the Leon game against City and the Leon game against Juventus, where there'll be Leon sitting very deep, Bayern controlling possession and controlling the ball. So, I mean, given that Leon caused Manchester City such problems, and we should say, I mean, how much um, do we have to attribute that down to Pep Guardiola's you know, decision to play that that three at the back with kind of two holding midfielders in front? Um how much heart can Leon take out of seeing a Barcelona team who were very poor still managed to score two goals, still managed to to create some chances at least against a team who was so dominant? Oh, yeah, they can take heart and they should take heart. And Leon are very good on the break. You know, Depay is, is very good. Corne is very good. Akambi is very good. Uh, Awa is very good. Um, yeah, they, they're a very good counter-attacking team. So, you know, they, 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 could, they could win it 1-0 or 2-1. Um, the problem is if they go behind. Uh and, and I guess the, the, you know, the question is to what extent do Bayern change their approach to try and counter that? I mean, the, the extraordinary thing about you know, what Guardiola did, I think there's a series of extraordinary things. And I, I'm, I'm genuinely bewildered by people who try and, defend them, to try and defend them over this. So, first of all, you just imagine psychologically what's happened. All season, pretty much all his career, bar certain key European games, Guardiola <laughs> goes... Right, there is no plan B. It's just plan A. And if plan A doesn't work, we'll do plan A a bit more and we'll do it a bit better. Plan A, plan A, plan A, plan A. Oh my God, lads, there's a team that came seventh in Liga. Here's plan B. <laughs> what, what must that do to the City players? You know, um, but okay, you know, he's seen that Leon are dangerous on the break. Um, so he thinks, right, we'll, we'll, we'll mirror them. We'll go to a back three. Uh, we'll, we'll use Carl Walker as a right wing back. That makes complete sense. Then the weird thing of using Cancelo, who's right-footed at left wing-back, so his, necessarily his attacking interventions are going to be less effective. Mm-hmm. When you've got Benjamin Mendy, who is, is uh, for me, a better wing-back than he is full-back, because he, you know, he's so attack-minded. And, and you know, not even to bring Mendy on seems very odd. But you made these changes. You switched to the back three to try and negate Leon's breaks. How did the three goals come? Two balls in behind and one scruffy break. So he hasn't even achieved the thing he set out to achieve. So he's managed to disrupt cities with them. He's managed to make them play very narrow because they've lost the two, you know, the two, the two wingers, um, which plays into Leon's hands as, as they sit deep. Everything they did from a creative point of view goes to either Gundogan or, or um, uh, Kevin De Bruyne, which makes it much easier to, to counter them when you've got the two wingers there as well. And maybe you know, the, the, the three eights, to use the phrase they used when, when Guardiola first arrived, of you know, Silva and De Bruyne or Bernardo Silva and De Bruyne or, or uh, Phil Foden and De Bruyne, who, you know, whoever. They, you know, they have options there. You've disrupted all of that. You've disrupted the, the defensive planning. So Kyle Walker playing at right wing back ends up five yards behind the defensive line to give him, you know, the, the, to, to, to play a Camby onside and the build for the first goal. You've done all of that and you haven't even managed to kind of do the thing you're setting out to do, which is was to stop the, the opponent breaking on you. So it's just a failure at every level. Failure at every level. Um, yeah, who knows? I mean, there's some talk about him. About who, who was the worst tactically, Pep Guardiola or uh, Kike Saitan, which I think uh, says everything you need to know, given that uh, Barcelona lost the game 8-2. Um, Martin, in, in terms of this game itself, 
Um, how, I mean, what would you be looking for when it comes to, to the betting markets? I noticed Jonathan there talking about a couple of possible correct scores. Leon 1 0 is 45 to 1, and Leon 2 1 is 35 to 1. So if you do want to get with Leon, um, dutching those two could be the way to do it. Um, but Ma- Ma- Martin, what are, you, what are you reckoning here? What would you be looking for? It's, it's so hard to find value. I, I think like those bets, like you say, if Leon are going to win, that's going to going to be how they do it. But if anyone actually believes that Leon are going to win that game, I'd be very very surprised. Um, I guess I guess you would look at Leon to score. I guess that would that would be the only sort of angle. And I, I reckon you you might get some value in sort of uh, Bayern to win and both teams to score, maybe with a or a Bayern and over three point five or something like that. Um, but they'll, they'll just have too much, in my opinion. Um, so yeah, this is a, where it's so one-sided. It's, it's it's very difficult to find to find value. But I guess yeah, back, backing Leon to score to score a goal on the counter, and like Jonathan says, whether that bothers Bayern that much, I doubt it does. So so yeah, that would be the angle for me. I would say Bayern and over three point five is six to five. So you've somehow managed to find a way of backing Bayern at odds against them, Martin, which is laudable. <laughs> I must say, uh, Jonathan, any, anything for you? Yeah, I mean that that was that was what I was uh, was thinking. The you're buying over three point five, or you're buying at maybe you know um, minus two point five. You're just thinking that you know buying score in the first half. The way Hansi Flick, uh, the way he is, they're not going to sit back on that. There's not going to be no sense of compassion of oh we'll go easy on these. They'll just keep racking up the goals. So you know he did it on Friday. He when he was Germany's assistant coach in 2014, they obviously did it against Brazil. You know, there's no sense of we stop playing once we've got a comfortable lead. So, yeah, buying and goals is 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 I think the only realistic way. If you do, and I agree with what you said as well that if you are going to back Lyon, you may as well dutch some some low scoring, you know, one nil, two one, two nil, as just back them because there's really only one way they can win it. So there you have it. We have those two uh, semi-finals there previewed for you. Um, quick look at the outright winner market where we have um, Bayern Munich are unsurprisingly the short price favourites at 11 to 20. So basically 8 to 15. Uh, PSG 11 to 4. Leipzig a 9 to 1. And Lyon 18 to 1. Does that seem about right to you guys? Or is there any, any of those seem like uh, worth uh, chucking a couple of quid out of the prices? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that probably is about right. Um, and maybe Leipzig represents the value. Um, mm. And they, they drew drew twice against Bayern in the Bundesliga this season. Mm. So, you know, they, they, they can thwart them. They do, they do know how to stop them playing. Um, I, I, was, I, was, I was in Leipzig for the draw, you know, their home draw against Bayern. And they were, they were pretty impressive that day. Um, Bayern obviously weren't quite on the, on the roll they are now. So it's maybe there's this, this some value in Leipzig, but I'm not really seeing much else, to be honest. So Leipzig there at 9-1, uh, to one, the pick for Jonathan. Martin, anything for you? Yeah, I completely agree. I just think if, there, if there's one team left in the competition that can can stop Bayern, then it is Leipzig. Uh, their record, the record is probably, it might be, it'll be an interesting game and probably one that quite a lot of people would like to see. But meetings between the sides over the last two seasons don't suggest that it'll be a sort of classic high scoring affair so people might want to sort of reconsider that I think it's been there were two draws that this season in the league and I think there was one draw the season before that and a 1-0 win for for Bayern so they've been very close and Nagelsmann's record against Bayern is 
it's decent and obviously he's very well tipped to, to end up there. Um, so yeah, if there's one team that can stop Bayern, and I think that's what you have to look at here, um, then it's probably RB Leipzig. So there you have it, Leipzig, the, the double selection there to win the whole competition at 9-1. to one. Uh, On now to this evening's game. So yeah, we're recording this just, just before 11 o'clock on Monday. So if you're listening to this or watching this on Tuesday, um, you can either turn off or you can listen to us making fools of ourselves trying to preview a game that is, uh, that's already happened in your world. But Inter are the really well-backed favourites for tonight. They're now 4-6 to six best price to win it in 90, but they're as short as, as 4-7 to seven elsewhere. Uh, and, and a sea of blue on odd checker. Um, the draw is 18 to 5, Shakhtar 9 to 2. And in the qualify market, um, Inter are 1 to 3 or, or best price, uh, 2 to 7 elsewhere. And Shakhtar as big as uh, as 5 to 2, or even 13 to 5 with spread X. Um, and this, I mean, you, you might disagree with me, but this seems maybe a little bit disrespectful to a Shakhtar side who have demolished. Basel 4-1, Wolfsburg 3-0, and understandably kind of away from the limelight, whilst Inter have been you know, very impressive with their you know their 2-1 win over, over Leverkusen could have been much more comfortable than the scoreline, and, and then a good win against Katafe as well, and obviously under you know under Conte and with Lukaku up front and a host of other stars, they, they do have a, a very strong team. I mean, does Jonathan, do, do those prices seem fair to you? No, no, I'd be back in Shakhtar or... <laughs> All night. I mean, mm. I, I think the it's, it's you got to look. What, you know, the these are very odd circumstances, and so for the same reason, I'm kind of slightly reluctant to criticise any one team for not quite being in the right physical shape at this this moment. Shakhtar are used to this this calendar. They're used to having a long winter break, coming back and finishing off their season in you know April, April, May, June, having a very short break and starting again. And they just look really fit and really fresh. And that makes complete sense because this isn't unusual for them. Mm. And so teams who have a long winter break, so Scandinavian teams, although obviously their, their level is slightly lower, but Russian teams and Ukrainian teams, I think are always disadvantaged in European competition because they have to play the big games in the March when they're really just starting to get going again. In some cases, haven't even started the, the, the spring part of their season. But this is the opposite. This plays completely into their hands. And... Um, I, you know, Shakhtar are a bit like Leipzig. They're one of those teams you shouldn't really like because, because of how they're funded and it's, you know, there's various unpleasantnesses there. Yeah. But what they do with the money, I think, is brilliant. You know, they, they've worked out this model of, you know, solid Ukrainians. Um, so, you know, Stepanenko you know, is, is, what is he, 30, 31 now? They managed to keep him there. And he's a, you know, he's a really, really good holding midfielder. You know, 10 years ago, he looked like being kind of a, you know, a huge star. And he hasn't quite hit that level, but he's still a really good, solid player. But then their scouting in Brazil is really good. So it's this team of young Brazilians looking for a move to Western Europe who were all, you know, they've got this sort of Brazilian colony there. You know, the, the, all the problems you normally get with homesickness don't exist. Um, I don't quite know how it's worked now that obviously Donetsk is much harder to live in. But yeah, I went out to their training complex there, well, I don't know, 15 years ago. And it's incredible. It's sort of like a luxury hotel. They have fishing lakes and aviaries. Now that may may have changed with you know, the, the 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 conflict there, but you have this community of of Brazilians and Portuguese speakers, and you have Portuguese chefs and Brazilian chefs, and so everything is made as comfortable as possible, and it works. And they have a style of play that, even though they, you know they they change coach every now and again, is essentially it's the same style that was laid down by Mateu Lucescu. Yeah, Luis Castro comes in with very very little experience he had 
your two months in charge of Porto is, is his only sort of high, high level experience. You know, they, they got him from uh, Vittorio Guimaraes. But he, you know, he, he's followed on what, what, what Fonseca did. And you, know, you saw against Basel, they, they were a really well drilled, really efficient, really exciting, good team. Absolutely. Um, so glad we're in agreement there. Martin, are you going to fight Inter's corner here? Or are you going to you going to agree with us on, on, the, on the merits of Shakhtar? Well, there's definitely merits in Shakhtar. And I think I think Inter are rightly favourites, but I think what we're arguing here is the sort of the difference in the in the prices. Mm. Um, and I think it's it's the flip side that also goes against Inter. Obviously, they they came out against Bayer Leverkusen and looked really really strong for for a period in the first half, but then they tired, and their <laughs> their season has been incredibly long. They've played an, an unreal amount of games uh, since lockdown. Uh, so so fatigue is going to be the the really big problem for Inter, and that will be decisive in this game uh, so yeah like Jonathan said it's completely different circumstances than you would sort of normally find these two teams playing so I think that's that's the big factor here uh, I guess the, the other factor is probably Romelu Lukaku uh, who is in exceptional form I think there's quite a lot made of the sort of scoring streak in the Europa League given that more than half of them were six years ago or whatever playing for Everton. So I'm not sure this, this, <laughs> that's this sort of incredible scoring run that it, people are, are making out. Um, but he is playing so, so well and does just, he just looks back to his best. When, he, when he's in the shape that he is now and in the sort of in the confidence that he is now, he's, he's pretty unplayable at times. Mm. Like he's just, he's, he's, he's such a bully. He's just bullies defenders. It really does. The amount of goals he scores like that is, is like no one, no other player in the world, really. Um, so, if he plays well, then 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 I think Inter win. But um, but yeah, the the difference in price is not logical in my opinion. Um, so yeah, I, I think Inter will edge it, but I think it'll be very very close. And Shakhtar are a good attacking side, and they will they will score in this game. I, I have little doubt about that. Uh, so <laughs> looking at both teams to score again, like a win and both teams to score again, probably. Um, but yeah, the way they've dispatched of Wolfsburg, Basel, they got past Benfica. They've beaten decent teams, not not spectacular teams, and the Inter are a, are a step up from those teams. Uh, so I'd, I'd expect a tight a tight game again, both teams to score. So <laughs> your bet slips looking pretty familiar across the board, I think, for most of these Goals, games. goals, goals. Yeah. <laughs> Inter and both teams score is two to one. Uh, both teams score and a draw. So a score draw is 17 to four. Shakhtar and both teams to score is 15 to two. But as I mentioned, it seems like Shakhtar to qualify at 13 to five for the spread X is the one that we're taking the most interest in. Uh, before I let you guys go, um, just one more thing to talk about, and that is the outright market in the Europa League, which only has three runners at the moment um Sevilla are the 19 to 20 odds on favorites Inter Milan uh, 7 to 5 Shakhtar 8 to 1 uh, in horse racing terms they always say back the outsider of the three let the let, let the two at the front of the market take each other on for the third one to, to swoop in we said something similar about Leipzig we've spoken about Shakhtar in pretty positive terms here at 8 to 1 is that the value here yeah absolutely uh, I mean I uh... I, I, I slightly disagree with Martin in that I, I, I would have Shakhtar as, as very slight favourites for tonight. I mean, mm. partly because... I mean, I also want to add to the Lukaku love that it really frustrated me the way he was treated with Manchester United. I, you know, I, having... The, the way he played for Belgium against Brazil in the World Cup was one of the most intelligent centre-forward performances playing on the right wing that, that I've ever seen. It was just... 
and, and you know, you think of him. You know, he has all those physical gifts. He is a bully, but he's also so much more than that. And and the fact that they, yeah, you know, he had the wherewithal to, to and and Roberto Martinez, to be fair, you know, you know, set it up to play De Bruyne as a, as a false nine, and him on the right, and and, and to, to to cut inside and completely mess with Brazil's left side. Took Neymar and Coutinho and. Felipe Luis was it a left back? Took mm. you know completely messed up that flank. Um, so I I I think he was badly done to at United, and we didn't see anything like the best of him. Um, but having said all of that, I would have Shakhtar as as very slight favourites for tonight's game, and it, I would fancy the beat Sevilla. So why would I? I'd have them as favourites for the tournament, and yet they're they're outside at eight to one. So yeah, I'm taking them eight to one. <laughs> That is exciting. Shakhtar 8-1. So maybe we can have the Shakhtar 8-1 Leipzig 9-1 double. If that one comes in, I think everybody watching and listening can uh, can buy Jonathan. Well, a, just a to be clear, I'm, I, I'm saying Leipzig because I think they're the only value in that market. Yeah, no, of course. I'm saying Shakhtar because I really firmly believe it. Okay. So, yeah, so t- tuck into the 8-1 Shakhtar and have a small one on Leipzig. Anything to add, Martin, on the outright? No, I, I agree. Like, Shakhtar are of, of excellent value and it's difficult to... It, if Inter do get through, it's very difficult to split those two teams uh, as to who who wins out of Inter and Sevilla. That that's a that's a tough one to call. So the value the value is on Shakhtar undeniably. Um, so yeah, nothing to add it, really. Think of Marlos and Tyson getting behind those Sevilla fullbacks. Mm. Yeah, tactically, it works as well. This is this is Shakhtar's to lose. <laughs> this is it, Shakhtar's to lose. Right. If, Shak- if Shakhtar do not win the Europa League, <laughs> then Luis Castro should resign in disgrace and never work again. <laughs> There we have it. There is a soundbite that we're going to use to end uh, this podcast and video. Thank you very much as ever to both Jonathan, Jonathan Wilson and to Martin Lawrence, two experts here. I've been your host, George Ellick. And, and just again, before we leave you, just going to point you in the direction of the Odds Checker app, the best place for all the very best prices. Bookie offers free bets and tipsters. Talking of tipsters, make sure you get yourself to who scored as well for brilliant match previews, player stats, team stats, everything between odds check and who scored you have everything you need to inform your decisions on your betting but most importantly please gamble responsibly